Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you, are you coming to the tree with a strong upper man, the same murder three? Strange things that happen here, no stranger would it be If we met at midnight in the hanging tree Welcome to Strange Things, broadcasting from the Arkansas Radio Studios in Laredo, Texas. And welcome to the show. I'm your host, Chris James. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the Texas Bigfoot Conference of 2017. But first, I don't know if you all have heard, but there have been a rash of Mothman-type sightings in and around Chicago for the past six months or so. People have been seeing a large Birdman creature that is described as being the same thing as seen in Point Pleasant uh, back in 1967. Seeing all the violence and murders in Chicago, I wonder what kind of disaster could rock the city. Hopefully nothing will happen, but we shall see. Mark your calendars. October 19th and 20th, 2018, the Texas Bigfoot Conference will be held in, where else, Jefferson, Texas. Don't miss out. Start planning today. For more information, simply search for Texas Bigfoot Conference 2018. Even though the conference this year is over two weeks ago, we just got home, so here are the highlights. This year, the conference was sold out. Every seat was occupied. Uh, there were folks waiting out in the lobby to come in during the breaks so they could meet the speakers and visit with the vendors. To make more room in the vendor section, uh, some of the tables were set up in the main room. This made moving about so much easier. Uh, last year, it got a bit crowded with all the tables and people. A Craig Woolheater gets better at this each year. Now I'm really looking forward to 2018 already. This year the meet and greet dinner was held at the conference site. We showed up around 6.30 and the front half of the auditorium was set up full of tables. Simply grab a seat, you put your nameplate down, marking your spot, 
So that way everybody knew that that table was occupied. We took the first table we came to right by the door. That way we could get in and out easily. Get to the bathrooms quicker. A family named Cooper Bartell from Fort Worth came in and they sat with us. It was unusual to see a whole family all interested in Bigfoot. The kids were all homeschooled and I guess this was their field trip. The daughter was hanging out at Cliff Barackman's table, just looking around when Cliff discovered he had a DVD that the box was damaged. He said he couldn't sell it, so he gave the DVD to the daughter. She was thrilled. Fernando Rodriguez from the Houston area took the last seat at our table. He actually lives in Spring, Texas. His wife, uh, well, wasn't much into Bigfoot, so she went out and visited the town, seen all the sites, the museums. She missed the best part of the show. The nice folks at Bulldog Pizza catered to dinner. When the company that was supposed to supply lunch the next day failed to show, Bulldog stepped up and they offered lunch as well. I got to visit with Lorne Coleman again. The last time I saw him was in an elevator in Tyler, Texas. There was a question I'd wanted to ask about the Jersey Devil. Back in February 25th, 2017, we did a show on strange creatures. I included the Jersey Devil in the show. While preparing for the show, I watched the Monster Quest episode with Lorne Coleman. He was talking about the Jersey Devil, and he held up a plaster cast made of the footprints. I looked at the cast, and it hit me. Why did the Jersey Devil have on horseshoes? Who was the guy that the Jersey Devil went to and asked to be shooed? Did some guy hammer on a set of iron shoes on the Jersey Devil, and how much did he charge? This bothered me for the next eight months, until I could finally ask in person. I asked Mr. Coleman about the cast, and he gave me the story. The producers on the TV show wanted something to show on air. Tracks of the Devil. The tracks seen by many were in the snow and you can't cast snow prints. So the production team went out to a farm and they made a plaster cast of some horse prints to look like they were from the Jersey Devil. I asked if this was some kind of a secret or could I use the information and Lauren said I could, so here it is. And now I know. And so do y'all. That night we were treated to an Italian dinner and we listened to Cliff Barackman talk about casting footprints. There have been a few fakes used over the years and he told how you can usually spot a fake. If every single track looks the same, it's probably not real. He has been the victim of a few fakes over the years. By looking at and casting lots of false tracks over the years, he now knows what to look for when determining the veracity of a print. Cliff showed a group of casted tracks from different sites. 
he showed what is known as the mid-tarsal break. A human foot bends at the toes. We push off with the ball of the foot. A big foot has an additional bend in the midsection, and kind of an extra hinge. When a big foot takes a step, it pushes off with the middle of the foot. This makes for a ridge of dirt right in the center of the track. The cliff said, A footprint is not the shape of the foot. It is the damage done to the ground by the foot as the creature walks by. It has been 50 years since the Patterson-Gimlin film first came out of Bluff Creek. Surprisingly, it's also been 50 years since the Mothman first made his presence known in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I'll talk more on that later in the show. After the evening closed down, we drove out to our campsite, Diamond Don's RV Park. We just about had the entire park to ourselves. Just us and the dog, Mark. It would have been a good night for Bigfooting, if not for being so darn tired. We hit the bed and got ready for the next day of the Bigfoot Conference. In the morning, Keith Crabtree was walking around out front. If you don't know his name, he played the creature in The Legend of Boggy Creek. His father was Smokey Crabtree of Bigfoot Legend. If for some unknown reason you've never seen A Legend of Boggy Creek, well, it's really time you did. This is the movie that got most cryptozoologists started. Yes, I saw it way back 1972 when it first came out at the theater. And yes, it got me interested in Bigfoot. I don't consider myself a cryptozoologist. I'm into all things paranormal. Some will say Bigfoot isn't paranormal. As long as the so-called scientists cough at the idea of a large, hair-covered creature living in the woods, a Bigfoot will be paranormal. And with that, we're going to take a brief pause and play a couple of commercials, so don't go away. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Arkanasa Radio. Do you have skin? Would you like to take better care of it? Call Lourdes James, independent beauty consultant, and set up an appointment. Call 723-3019. Coffee, nectar of the gods. And at the Organic Man Coffee Trike, you'll find coffee made the right way. One delicious cup at a time. Stop on by 4501 McPherson, Suite Number 9. And remember, life is too short to drink bad coffee. If your vision isn't what it used to be, and you're not sure you're seeing Bigfoot or just your neighbor mowing his lawn, Stop on by Del Norte Optical, 107 Calle Del Norte, 
just across the street from the Embassy Suites. You should be able to see what you're looking at. No, don't say goodbye. Stay with us. This is Arcanelza Radio. Quédate con nosotros. Estás escuchando Arcanaza Radio. Did you hear a bump in the night and you think it just might be a ghost? Contact the Laredo Paranormal Research Society at LaredoParanormal at Hotmail. Com. That's the LPRS for all your otherworldly needs. You're listening to Strange Things with Chris James. And welcome back to the show. Speaking of large, Keith must be nearly seven feet tall. That guy is huge. He walked around talking and getting his photo taken with everybody waiting to get in. Of course, me and my wife, we got our photo taken with him. It was a true honor to meet him. When the doors opened at nine in the morning and the line was out past the parking lot, everybody wanted to get inside and talk to the folks with the books and the souvenirs from their Bigfoot adventures. There were no tickets left to sell since the conference was sold out, but people were still there just in case. They were allowed inside to talk to the speakers and check out the vendors, but they had to leave during the speaker parts. We grabbed our seats and I went to talk to all my friends from the past and make a few new ones at the same time. I won't go into who all I talked to because all of them agreed to be on strange things at some time in the future. If half are able to be interviewed, we'll have a good year ahead of us. I did get to talk to Ken Gerhardt, sporting his new hat. He will be coming on the show someday soon. I'm still kind of hurting from that last screw-up. I pushed the wrong button and the entire interview was lost. The next time I'll have to get Arturo to check my settings. Nothing but technical difficulties that night. Now keep in mind, I took notes as fast as I could write. My wife even helped out. The people write at about 60 to 70 words a minute. I think I come in at about 50. Now people speak at a rate of 120 words a minute. So as the time went by, I kept getting farther behind. I did my best to catch everyone's words. That and the conference was over three weeks ago. Craig Woolheater had his Bigfoot encounter back in 1994 while driving through Louisiana on a small two-laned road. There on the side of the road was a huge, hair-covered creature. Craig zipped by, and he wanted to turn around and have a better look, but his girlfriend wanted nothing to do with it. Craig began looking for other folks with sightings, and 
Soon, he formed the Texas Bigfoot Research Center. It is still going strong today. For the entire story, check out cryptomundo.com backslash Craig Woolheater. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, Craig started things off by announcing all the upcoming events and some news. The Texas Bigfoot Research Center has put together a scholarship to send some young folks to school to study science. Maybe help grow new Bigfoot hunters. The Southeast Texas Bigfoot Conference will be held April 21st, 2018 in Huntsville, Texas. Get your tickets today. Uh, simply look for Southeast Texas Bigfoot Conference for all the details. Chester Moore Jr. is a wildlife journalist. He is the co-founder at Kingdom Zoo Wildlife Center and editor-in-chief at Texas Fish and Game magazine. He's been looking into Bigfoot for most of his life. Chester talked about his Bigfoot dealings from the past. While out looking into some possible sites, he'd heard a sound in the dark that was similar to a howler monkey. It growled at him, so he tried growling back. The next few minutes was a back-and-forth in growls. But people often ask Chester, isn't Bigfoot getting kind of old by now? As if there's only one from Bluff Creek? It's as if people think the creature in the Patterson-Gimlin film is the only Bigfoot out there. Makes you wonder how they think the Yeti gets from one side of the planet to the other. Then the question of the body always comes up. Why hasn't anyone found a Bigfoot body? Well, you could ask why no one has ever found a bear's body in the woods. We know bear live out there, yet no one has stumbled on a dead bear yet. Since Bigfoot lives in the woods and there are other creatures living out there that eat anything they can find, a dead body would only last a few days before scavengers hauled every single piece away. In regards to the Patterson-Gimlin film, it is still the best evidence out there of Bigfoot. If it were a fake, how come no one has come out with a better one? Considering the costume-making process of the 60s, Roger Pattison could have come out and said, Yeah, I faked that costume, and Hollywood would have made him a millionaire recreating the creature. No one either then or now, has come close to creating a monster that looks anything like Patty. Jester also talked about the ivory-billed woodpecker that is supposed to be extinct. There's a video of one in Arkansas. The video has been scrutinized by experts who all agree the images are of the extinct bird. 
Ah, but then the scientists all say, no way. That bird doesn't exist anymore, so the video has to be fake. The experts are basically saying, they don't believe it, so therefore it isn't real. Instead of examining the evidence and doing a bit of field work. As of now, there is a $10,000 reward if you can prove the ivory-billed woodpecker is still alive and well. I talked to Chester during the break. He told me the Kingdom Zoo had taken a beating from the hurricane and they could use some help. If you have a few dollars to spare, send them to thekingdomzoo.com backslash donate. You'll be helping out at a great cause. Chester agreed to come on Strange Things. His interview will be next Saturday at 5 p.m. at arkanasa.com. Speaking of the Patterson-Gimlin film, it was 50 years ago, October 20th, that the PNG film was captured. We all signed a card that was delivered to Bob Gimlin. He was overwhelmed that so many folks thought so much about him. The next speaker was Jerry Heston. He is a native of North Texas and has been involved in Bigfoot research since January 2001. Jerry is now a retired elementary educator who has spent much of the last 16 years investigating and writing witness encounters about Bigfoot sightings in Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Jerry's been looking into Bigfoot sightings for many years now. He started out back when the Texas Bigfoot Research Center had first opened. Jerry has traveled all over Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas, checking out reports and trying to have a close encounter with Sasquatch. His book, Hunting Apes in America, is available from Amazon.com. If you're into Bigfoot, this is the book for you. Jerry talked about some of his more memorable investigations and a few reports that he'd looked into. I was going to go into some of his more interesting stories, but then I got a hold of him and he said he'd come on strange things and tell them himself, so I'll let Jerry tell his story in a few weeks. Until then, check out his website at jerryhestand.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-H-E-S-T-A-N-D.com. Shelley Covington, Montana, came on to talk about DNA recovery. She showed her new and improved evidence kit. It costs less than the others and is designed to go anywhere. You can take a look at the kit at BigfootLunchClub.com. It shows all the contents and how to use them as well. Shelley just finished her one-year solo Bigfoot hunt. She lived in a fold-out camper and traveled throughout the Midwest looking into every out-of-the-way location for signs and sights of the big hairy guy. Ken Gerhardt came on to talk about what he calls Littlefoot, or the gnomes and duende, found all over the Americas. These small hair-covered creatures have been seen on just about every continent. There are depictions of them in cave drawings dating back thousands of years. 
Some people will say these are just small or juvenile Bigfoot, but evidence shows they are more than likely a different group of creatures. Ken has traveled all over the planet looking into cryptid reports. My all-time favorite is still the Beast of Javadon, the werewolf that was hunting in France back in the, the 1760s. Ken has written a number of books, Encounters with Flying Humanoids, A Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts, Big Bird, which is a book about giant birds or possibly flying dinosaurs that are seen throughout the Midwest, and Monsters of Texas, which he wrote along with Nick Redfern. You can catch Ken on Missing in Alaska. Just check it out on YouTube. David Weatherly is the owner of Leprechaun Productions. He's the co-founder and owner of that production. He's also the owner of the Society of the Supernatural, and founder at Two Crows Paranormal. Dave talked about a story I loved from the past, which unfortunately has turned out to be a fake. He was telling about what was called the Choctaw Bigfoot War, a story about Indians fighting a tribe of giant hair-covered cannibals. I really hate it when things like that turn out to be made up, the tribe mentioned in the story were all supposed to be about seven feet tall. The story goes, A group of light horsemen were sent out to flush a group of bandits who had been raiding the Indian villages, stealing corn, squash, and children. The light horsemen were led by a Captain Joshua Lefleur, a half-French, half-Indian. They came across a group of huge hair, hairy creatures that they kind of looked like men or they kind of looked like apes. The light horsemen killed the monsters off. Well, the Choctaw tribe say that this never happened, and they should know. It's good to see if evidence is found of a hoax, it is brought to light. Ah, but then there's the story of the Lovelock Cave. The tribes all banded together, and they drove a band of Sasquatch-type creatures that liked eating the locals into the cave and then set fire at the entrance. In 1920s, when men were digging guano from the cave, they came upon a bunch of giant skeletons, all with bright red hair. The skeletons were turned over to the Smithsonian, who promptly denied anything of the sort ever happened. Dave then told about evidence found among the Paiute tribe of giants living with them. Sandals were found measuring up to 15 inches long. Back then, few people grew over 5 foot 8. Jerry went on to some detail on the Jarbridge Gold Rush of the 1900s. Some of the bizarre circumstances that brought the gold mining to a close. Jarbridge is the most remote location in the lower 48. It is in the middle of nowhere. When things go weird, there's nobody to call for help. The local Indian tribe refused to go near the area, saying it was the domain of monsters. 
There are still reports coming in about the Jarbridge monster today. Lyle Blackburn took the stage. There was no real stage, but he came out to talk about Bigfoot in and around Jefferson. Lyle is a musician, writer, TV host, and historian. There have been numerous sightings over the last few hundred years. And Caddo Lake is just a few miles east, and on the other side of the lake you'll find Falk, Arkansas. If you've never heard of these places, it's time you did some Bigfoot reading or watched the Legend of Boggy Creek and There's Something in the Woods. Both of these movies are worth seeing. We're going to take a brief pause and play a couple commercials, so don't go away. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Arkanasa Radio. Are you taking care of your skin, or are you going to wait and see how time treats you? Take care today by contacting Lourdes James, independent beauty consultant at 956-723-3019. Don't let time get the best of you. Coffee makes the world go round. And around here, we have the Organic Man Coffee Trike. 4501 McPherson, Suite Number 9. If you're not looking for coffee, try their tea. It's the best in town. And remember, life is too short to drink bad coffee. If you need to squint and hold things out at arm's length to see them, maybe you should get your eyes checked. Del Norte Optical, 107 Calle Del Norte, is right across from the Embassy Suites. Stop squinting and start seeing. bump in the night and you think it just might be a ghost? Contact the Laredo Paranormal Research Society at LaredoParanormal at Hotmail.com That's the LPRS for all your otherworldly needs. This is Arkanasa Radio you've been listening to. You're listening to Strange Things with Chris James. And welcome back. Somebody described Lyle as being warm syrup poured over hot pancakes. From that moment on, everybody was trying to come up with their own descriptives involving peanut butter and syrup and other ingredients. Then, 
a bottle of syrup turned up from the Blackburn Syrup Company. There was no relation, but it was kind of neat to see. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lyle's latest work is The Mothman. This is the true story about 13 months, beginning in November 1966, when a car full of kids encountered a creature they described as being a gigantic bird. The people all around Point Pleasant, West Virginia and Gallipolis, Ohio, encountered a huge flying creature. There were also numerous UFO sightings and visitations by the men in black. December 15, 1967, the Silver Bridge collapsed, killing 46 people, most of whom were never found. To get a copy of The Mothman of Point Pleasant, go to smalltownmonsters.com or amazon.com. Lauren Coleman come all the way from Maine to speak at the conference. 1,700 miles. He has been to the TBRC on a few occasions. Lauren talked about how the abominable, abominable snowman isn't really white. It was never depicted as being white until one of the movies came along. We all took turns trying to quickly guess which of the many Sasquatch Bigfoot movies it might have been. We were all wrong. The movie responsible for everybody thinking the abominable snowman as being white was... Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Good Lord. The abominable snowman is actually brown or gray, according to the folks who have seen one. They call them Yeti. If you caught Adam Davies on Expedition Unknown with Josh Gates, you would have heard him saying that Yeti are brown, not white. Mr. Coleman told of the origins of the word Sasquatch. Back in the 1920s, an Indian agent named J.W. Burns put together all of the local stories he had heard and published them in a series of newspaper articles in Canada. These were accounts told to him by the Stasais people, or Chihalis, and other tribes. Stasais and other regional tribes maintained that these Sasquatch were real. They were often offended when people would tell them that the figures were not real but only legendary. According to the Stas Alice, the Sasquatch prefers avoiding white men and would speak the Lilluit language of the people at Port Douglas, British Columbia. These stories were published again in the 1940s. Burns borrowed the term Sasquatch from the Holcomelm Susquets and used it in his articles to describe all the creatures told of in the tribal legends. 
Uh, Lauren Coleman runs the one and only Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. He's looked into everything from Mothman to the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, check it out at CryptozoologyMuseum.com Cliff Barackman was the uh, from Finding Bigfoot was the final speaker. He talked about handprint evidence. Bigfoot being all or part ape, it uses its hands to walk as well as pick things up and manipulate them. Sometimes they have left behind handprints. These are usually huge, twice as big as a man's. Also, their thumbs are located at a different location. This makes the prints left behind very different. After the main conference, there was a dinner party catered by Joseph's Riverport Barbecue. I can never eat barbecue in Laredo again. It was so good, no one else will ever come close. I might have to drive all the way to Jefferson just for dinner. The Sunday, there was a Bigfoot Sasquatch survival hike with Lauren Coleman and Craig Woolheater out at the Caddo Lake State Park, the Texas Parks and Wildlife. The idea was to just enjoy the day, but learn a bit about what a giant hair-covered creature would eat in such a location. This was a family-friendly nature walk. My wife and I had a few miles to cover, so we headed north early Sunday. We took a quick side trip to see Lake Michigan. There are hundreds of sunken ships sitting at the bottom of Lake Michigan. Many members of the crew were never recovered. The water is so cold that bodies will laugh indefinitely. It runs about 38 degrees at the bottom. The lake is 922 feet deep. It's 118 miles across and 307 miles long. That makes for 22,394 square miles of a lake. To put that into perspective, West Virginia is 24,230 square miles. For years now, people have reported seeing a large, unknown sea creature out in the waters of Michigan. There is an interesting story I read way back when I was 20. A man was attacked by a shark in Lake Michigan back in 1955. The attack happened near one of the beaches at Chicago. The shark may have been traveling through the Illinois River and then worked its way into Lake Michigan. Bull sharks have been seen in freshwater lakes all over the world. If one bull shark was living in the lake back in 1955, I'll bet there are more there today. Among all the other mysteries is the disappearance of the schooner Thomas Hume, which disappeared without a trace in Lake Michigan on May 21, 1891. The schooner was sailing empty from Chicago to Muskogan, Michigan, where it was going to pick up a load of lumber. The ship was manned by a seven-man crew, including Captain George C. Albright. The ship and crew vanished during a storm. Nothing was ever recovered. No wreckage, no bodies, nothing to show the ship had ever existed. The lake was searched thoroughly. 
Not a stick of lumber or a piece of floatsome from the wreck was ever found. A wooden ship doesn't just sink to the bottom. It breaks apart. Things come loose, sails and rigging, the spares and masts. Something had to float away from the wreck. Old sailors speculate that the Hume, a wooden vessel, could not have sunk without some wreckage floating away. To this day, the Hume's disappearance remains unsolved. Nothing has come to light as to when and where the Thomas Hume went. We wanted to spend more time looking around, but it was cold and wet, and we still had a few places to go. We drove to Elkhart, Indiana, to have a look at the RV Hall of Fame and Museum. If you're into RVing, you have to go to Elkhart. 65% of all RVs made in the United States come from Elkhart. They have old RVs built back in the 1930s. Some look as if they were intended as punishment instead of for holiday making. One grand looking old unit had the bathroom right in the kitchen. It was probably done for the plumbing, but still it gave the whole RV a bit of a weird vibe. <clears throat> we turned east and headed for Point Pleasant, West Virginia, home of the one and only Mothman Museum. I've wanted to go there for the last 20 years, and this was my chance. And my wife was okay with it. The drive was only 345 miles. Not all that far, but we had to stay at the RV museum longer than we had anticipated, and it had started getting late. My wife got on her tablet and looked for an RV park in our line of travel. The computer said there was an RV park in Chillicothe, Ohio, so we punched it into the GPS and sat back and enjoyed the rest of the night. We arrived in Chillicothe and turned to the north following the GPS. It said we only had a few minutes' drive ahead of us. We drove for about 20 minutes. A flag popped up on the GPS showing the end of the drive was coming. As we were growing closer to the flag, the GPS shut down, and then it came back on, all by itself. It said we had to turn around and go back. And we're on a skinny little mountain road. I had to snake my way backwards with our trailer onto a bridge to get turned around. Our dog Mark went nuts. He began barking and growling at something just outside the truck. It was all my wife could do to get him under control and then he began shaking and whimpering. I managed to get us turned around and we drove back the way we had come. I turned as the GPS showed. We drove around a small mountain and soon we were right back at the same bridge where I'd turned around. The GPS said we were where we needed to be. Mark barked and acted a bit weird the whole time. He tried to hide under my wife's legs. I looked all over but I saw nothing that even kind of looked like an RV park or a monster waiting to attack. Maybe it was the other side of that scary-looking bridge where I had backed up. 
We drove up that road and watched as it became a single-lane road running through some farmland. As the end of the road came into view, I decided it was time to call it quits. I had to pull off of the road and then slowly maneuver through a field in order to get turned around and headed back to the highway. It was pitch black and I had to slowly pull forward so as to not get stuck or in a spot where I couldn't turn. Each time we drove over that bridge, Mark would bark and growl. In all, we spent an hour and a half looking for this campsite. Once we got back to the highway, I stopped at a gas station. We were getting low. Inside the station, I asked if there was an RV camp in the area. The guy behind the counter acted as if he didn't know what an RV was. I went as far as to point out our unit parked at the pump. He finally said there was no RV anything in the area. Well, we decided to drive on to Point Pleasant without stopping. The folks running the Point Pleasant RV park were super helpful. They just happened to be in the office as we drove in at 10 p.m. As I was setting up, the man in the RV next to us was sitting by a fire and we got to talking. It turns out he was from Ohio and he lived close to Chillicothe. I asked him about an RV park there and he said there were no RV parks anywhere around Chillicothe. Now I know GPS are notorious for misleading people, but we used my wife's tablet as well. For some unknown reason, GPSs and RVs, parks, act as if they hate each other. Later on in the trip, the GPS froze up and it wound up laying in the back seat. Now I need to buy a new one. That was just plain weird. And we're going to take a brief pause here and play a couple commercials. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to Arkanasa Radio. Makeup isn't something you want to just smear on and hope for the best. You might come out looking like Lon Chaney. Call Lourdes James, independent beauty consultant, and get a free makeover to see how makeup should be done. 956-723-3019. Back in 1776, someone said, Give me coffee or give me death. And if that's how you feel, you should be at the Organic Man Coffee Track. They make coffee the right way, one delicious cup at a time. 4501 McPherson, Suite Number 9. Coffee, the stuff dreams are made of. bump in the night and you think it just might be a ghost contact the Laredo Paranormal Research Society at Laredo Paranormal at hotmail.com that's the LPRS for all your otherworldly needs
you go out UFO hunting and couldn't focus on the sky, swing on by Del Norte Optical, 107 Calle Del Norte, right across from the Embassy Suites. And that's not a weather balloon, that's a flying saucer. This is Arkanasa Radio you've been listening to. You're listening to Strange Things with Chris James. And welcome back to the show. After arriving in Point Pleasant, we set up for the night, and then we got ready to go into town. Point Pleasant is a small town on the Ohio River. Not much has happened there up until 1966. In November, two young couples were out driving in an area known as the TNT. This is where, during World War II, the government assembled munitions. All kinds of chemicals were used. Things today that are considered hazardous to both people and the environment. A large complex had been built underground. There wasn't much to do in a small town at night, so kids would drive out to the old abandoned plant and do what kids were going to do. The two couples drove around a bit, and then one of the women spotted a strange-looking creature on the side of the road. It looked like a man with huge, red, glowing eyes. She pointed the thing out to the others. As they watched, it opened a set of wings from behind and took flight. The wings kind of resembled moth wings, but they all described the creature as being a giant bird. As the bird rose into the air, the two couples made a quick decision to get out of there fast. They began driving away only to find the giant bird was now in pursuit. It was following close behind. Its wings went from one side of the road to the other. They sped away, trying to outrun the giant bird. It stayed with them right up until the edge of town. The two couples were so shook up, they went straight to the police to make a report. Naturally, the police thought someone was either drunk or on something. They did take a drive out to look around the TNT area, but they didn't see anything. Three days later, some men were working at a cemetery in Clendenin, preparing for an upcoming funeral. They thought they heard something moving about in the bushes. Then, one of the men spotted something in the trees. It looked like a man, only with wings. It rose up into the air and flew away. The men were all amazed and terrified to see a giant man-bird with bright red eyes. A few nights later, a man watching TV began experiencing trouble. The screen began to flicker and blur. Anyone who grew up back before cable will know about this problem. Then the set just simply went out. Now he could hear a commotion outside, so he stepped out to see what was going on. His dog was howling and barking at something over near the barn. The man spotted a huge bird-shaped creature with red eyes. 
The dog took off after the thing and was never seen again. Mary Heyer, a reporter working in Point Pleasant for the Athens Messenger, sent in an article about the giant Birdman. The editor didn't much like the name Birdman, so he changed it to Mothman after the comic strips Batman and Superman. From that point on, everyone began referring to the creature as the Mothman. A writer named John Keel drove about West Virginia looking for UFO reports. He'd heard about the Mothman and he decided to look into it. Once he began, it was as if he couldn't stop. He couldn't get much response from the locals, being an outsider. To get people to talk to him, he teamed up with Mary Heyer so she could get the people of Point Pleasance to talk to him. Mary lived in a small town her entire life. She grew up trusting people. Nobody locked their doors at night. One night she was working in her office when a strange man, dressed in black, came in to visit her. He told her to stop looking into the Mothman and stop talking to John Keel. People around town all assumed these men in black suits were from the government, but nobody ever asked or was shown any kind of identification. There were dozens of reports coming in from all over the area about people seeing the Mothman. John Keel had to return to New York, so he left, fully intending to return soon. In December, John was convinced from phone calls he'd received that something bad was about to happen. He was watching TV news on December 15, 1967, fully expecting to see some catastrophe befall the lighting of the Christmas tree by President Johnson. The switch was thrown, and nothing went wrong. John was confused after all of the warnings he'd received. As he sat there wondering what he had missed, the news announced the collapse of the Silver Bridge that went from Point Pleasant, West Virginia to Gallipolis, Ohio. The bridge had collapsed, filled with holiday shoppers. Forty-six people died. Many of their bodies washed away in the freezing cold water. Every person living in Point Pleasant was either related to or close to somebody who died that day. It was a community-wide tragedy. Thirteen months from the first sighting of the Mothman, I-bolt number 13 had failed, causing the entire bridge to collapse. Mary Heyer developed cancer and died 13 months after the collapse. The Patterson-Gimlin film was taken October 20, 1967. The Silver Bridge collapse was December 15, 1967. What else happened in 1967? January 27, a flash fire aboard Apollo 1 killed astronauts Grissom, White, and Chaffee. They were going through drills in a pure oxygen atmosphere when somebody said they smelled smoke. Within seconds, the capsule was engulfed in flames. The outer hatch was bolted in place and rescue was impossible. 
Gus Grissom was a veteran of the Mercury program. His capsule, the Liberty Bell 7, had sank. The scientists all accused Grissom of blowing the hatch too soon. They were convinced they knew better about what went wrong. Thirty-eight years later, they recovered the spacecraft. The recovery, the recovery team found the explosive hatch bolt still in place. It had to be removed by bomb technicians. The hatch wasn't blown as everybody had thought. The hatch was warped upon impact with the ocean, and it sprang open on its own. Gus was right. He didn't blow the hatch. May 19, 1967, Stefan McCulloch had a close encounter of the second kind. Stefan was a mechanic and was out of town hunting for silver deposits when he came upon a flying saucer. It emitted a whirring sound and changed colors as he watched. It sat down on the ground and Stefan approached the flying disc. He got close enough to touch the side of the craft. As his hand touched the surface, the craft began to spin. Then it took off. He was pushed back by some unknown force. It shoved him backwards and onto the ground. His clothes became extremely hot and then burst into flames. He ripped the burning garments off. His chest was burned by the encounter. He began to feel sick. He said his skin smelled like burning electronics. Investigators looked into his clothing and his chest, but they could come up with no reason for the burns. They were neither chemical nor electrical. There were some foreign substance found on his clothes, but nobody could figure out what they were. To this day, the Falcon Lake incident is still unsolved. Then in August, there was the Cusack incident in which four aliens and a UFO were seen by two children, a 13-year-old Francis and 9-year-old Anne Marie. They initially saw four aliens, but eventually found a glowing sphere two meters across. One of the aliens was bent over, and another of the four aliens was holding a strange object that looked kind of like an alien mirror. The glowing UFO was described as having a soft whistling sound, and it smelled of sulfur. It looked as if the aliens were working on the flying craft. Next, the aliens got inside the sphere and it rose up into the air as it gave off a glowing light. The higher it got, the brighter it glowed. Police came to investigate and found a sulfurous smell still in the air. There was a burned ring about 15 feet across where the children had seen the flying disc. <clears throat> October 4th, a flying saucer crashed into Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, which means New Scotland. Witnesses all thought a plane had crashed into the harbor and boats were sent out to look for survivors. As the boats plowed through the waves, they came across a strange, foamy substance floating on the water. Nobody was looking for UFO evidence. They were looking for people in the water, so nobody ever bothered to collect a sample. <clears throat> the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were called, 
and they in turn contacted the Canadian Navy. The Navy sent divers to the scene of the crash. They descended to the bottom on several trips. Then, all official activity stopped and everything became classified. Nobody was allowed to talk, about the to, talk to the locals as to what they had found at the bottom of the harbor. <coughs> Word did get out that there was a crashed disk at the bottom of the harbor. It was sitting on the bottom for several hours. Then a second saucer-shaped craft came to the area and hooked onto the first disk. Together, the two strange objects left the area. The first report filed by the Mounties was labeled UFO Crash. The United States Navy had hydrophones all along the coast to listen for Soviet submarines. The hydrophones picked up all kinds of weird sounds during the incident. Of course, the information was all classified as being top secret due to national security concerns. To get a better report, go to ufocasebook.com backslash shagharbor to read more on this crash, or you can go to amazon.com and order a copy of Dark Object by Don Ledger. So, as you can see, 1967 was a busy year for strange things. UFOs and cryptids were being seen all over the United States as well as Canada. I'll bet there was a lot more going on in the rest of the world, but I only looked into our side of the planet for now. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. If you did, tell your friends. Or check out our page on Facebook, Strange Things with Chris James. Our archives can be found at strangethings.potomatic.com and you can write to us at strangethings at arcanasa.com. Till next week, I hope you've enjoyed the show and talk to you all later. Are you, are you coming to the tree? With a strong upper man, the same murder three. Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be. If we met at midnight in the hanging tree.